0: Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hello, folks, this is Ben, and this is, as you know, my podcast, A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers. Welcome along, hope you're doing all right. I am fine. Thanks very much for asking. I've got Martin Parr on this week. Um, The only person ever, so far at least, to come back to do a second full chat. I'll tell you in a second um, how that came about. Let me just do this first. This episode of a small voice podcast is supported by Flow Photographic, a leading and internationally renowned photographic print studio in central London, where the emphasis is on personal service and the creation of stunning prints. Flow's clients are invited to take their time, drink coffee, and discuss their work with founder and hugely experienced master printer Alex Schneiderman, who's also the artistic director at Photo Oxford 2023, so he can bring a wealth of experience to your work. The studio, which also carries out exhibition framing and installation as well as publishing services is located in central London just 20 minutes from Soho and a minute's walk from Kensal Green Tube Station on the Bakerloo line. Recent clients include a whole host of well-known photographers such as Jarl Meyerowitz, Paddy Summerfield, Jen Southern, Mimi Plum, Chris Anderson and Magnum Photos, Stanley Barker Publishing, the Howard Greenberg Gallery, Huxley Parlour and other museums and art institutions all over the world. The lab is also home to Flow Photographic Gallery a non-profit space that supports and showcases British documentary photographers currently showing process environment and the print a survey of 30 years of printmaking and photography by documentary great Ian McDonald. so go to the website flowphotographic.com and call flow to make an appointment to discuss your work so yeah Martin first was on this podcast uh, October 2018 and the episode is 91 so if you haven't listened to that one go back and maybe check that one out first there is no particular rule about photographers coming back on again it's just obviously there are a lot of photographers to talk to and for the most part it seems like one you know hour or so long chat um, is sufficient to sort of at least for a number of years cover everything that they've done and are doing but um, yeah like I say there's no particular reason to not have someone back now Martin I saw in Bristol when I was at the photobook festival recently and most of you have probably listened to, hopefully to that special that I brought to you from there and when we were chatting he sort of mentioned the fact that you know he didn't feel like he'd really been fully present for the first one or at least he didn't have much time he was in a bit of a rush and there were other people sort of vying for his attention you know I kind of personally also felt perhaps that I hadn't done a particularly great job of it so we sort of very quickly concluded between us that it'd be well worth just doing it again. And so that's what we did. I went back down to Bristol uh, a couple of months or weeks after that, and uh, we recorded this one. So so I'm going to give you the short bio, um, which I basically nicked off the RRB Books website. RRB is a book publisher there in Bristol who have published Martin's most recent book, which is called A Year in the Life of Chewstoke Village. And um, well, I'll talk to you more about that in a minute. But basically, I'm not going to give you the full length bio because I used that one on episode 91. So if you want the longer bio, you can either go to episode 91 or you can go to Martin's own website and find it there. I'm going to give you the short one, Martin Parr. Born 23 May 1952, the man who the Daily Telegraph declared to be arguably Britain's greatest living photographer is known for his photographic projects that take an intimate, satirical and anthropological look at aspects of modern life, in particular documenting the social classes of England and, more broadly, the wealth of the Western world. His major projects have been rural communities, the last resort, his book of photographs from New Brighton in Liverpool, the cost of living, small world and common sense. Since 1994, Martin has been a member of Magnum Photos, where he scraped in by one vote and where, between 2013 and 2017, he served as president. His work has been published in numerous photo books, over 120 of his own, and he has exhibited prolifically throughout his career. In 2017, the Martin Parr Foundation was opened in Bristol. The MPF is a gallery, an archive and research resource dedicated to both preserving Martin's photographic legacy and to supporting emerging, established and overlooked photographers who've made and continue to make work focused on the British Isles. Since his first A Small Voice appearance on episode 91 of the podcast, as I say, October 2018, Martin has had a major exhibition at the National Portrait Gallery, which opened in March 2019, entitled Only Human. The show included portraits from around the world, with a special focus on Britishness, explored through a series of projects that investigated British identity. Also since that episode, Martin has been awarded a CBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours List in June 2021, and his latest book... As I said already, it's called A Year in the Life of Chew Stoke Village and was released last year, 2022, by RRB Books. So a little message for the members. Um, You hopefully have enjoyed the first two versions of our our new undertaking, which is called PhotoBook Focus. This is where a photographer who may or may not have been a previous guest or may or may not be a future guest is going to come and do a Zoom session for you members, a live session where they present a current or forthcoming photo book and you get a Q&A at the end. And for the most part, you get the opportunity to win a copy of that book. So if you're thinking about joining up as a member and taking advantage of this new resource and also getting your own exclusive subscriber only edition of the podcast, which goes out on the alternate weeks to this episode, you can sign up as a member for £5 a month or whatever that is in your currency at pod.fan. And I am going to be ramping up the benefits for all members as much as I possibly can in the next uh, in the coming months and years, because I want to make it a really attractive proposition to hand over that five quid a month. The more members that I can have, uh, the more that this podcast can be a viable proposition going forward. So like I say, join up as a member at pod.fan. Martin is going to be on a future episode of photo book focus, talking about that very book, a year in the life of Chewstoke Village. And Martin's scheduled to do that on March 15th. If you're not available to join their live at the time, it happens at uh, 7 p.m. GMT, then the recording of that session goes on my website for members to then access after the fact. So yeah, Martin's gonna be doing that on March 14th, just a note for your diary members. And while I'm on the subject Next month, February 15th, is going to be Alice Tomlinson talking about her great uh, book, The Islanders, uh, published by Gost. So those are coming up in the next couple of months and then uh, there'll be more um, after that, of course. So in the meantime, I want to bring you this chat with Martin. Before I continue, this episode is also sponsored by Charcoal Editions, the newest project of Charcoal Book Club, a curated online gallery selling open edition silver gelatin prints. That means a unique opportunity for photography lovers like me and you to acquire beautiful silver gelatin prints that ordinarily would only be financially accessible to collectors and institutions. Additioning photographic prints is an invention of galleries and dealers designed to increase scarcity and drive up prices. Charcoal Editions is rejecting that model. The purchase price of their prints reflects an equitable division between artist, printer and gallery. You're not paying for a signature or artificial scarcity, but for light itself captured within the fabric of black and white photographic paper. To ensure the highest quality possible, every silver gelatin print is handmade by Sergio Patel and the master printers at Black and White on White in Brooklyn, New York. The motto there is Beauty Over Scarcity, which reflects Charcoal Editions' mission to return to the core of photography's democratic and accessible nature. So go to charcoaleditions.com to browse through some of the beautiful images available there. Now, there are extensive show notes, as always, uh, at my website, bensmithphoto.com, the small voice page of that website. And so, please do take advantage of those show notes. Um, Martin, as always, listed a very large number of people, some of whom I know I will have missed off the list. But I try and mention everyone who gets referenced in each episode of the podcast and put a link in there on the show notes so you can all follow up those links, find out who we're talking about if you don't know, or find out more about those particular people. I always do my best to do a good job of that. And um, yeah, like I say, apologies for people who got left off, but there were so many names on there. And frankly, it's just massively, massively time consuming. By the way, if you uh, are in need of a new website or you need your old website uh, to have a revamp, do let me know. Ben at is the email address. Let me know and I will make a website for you using the Squarespace platform so you don't have to take the time and the energy and the effort and the bandwidth it takes to learn how to use that platform yourself or learn how to build a website with it. Um, I will design and build the website. I'll offer a full copywriting and editing service if you need such a thing. I'll sort out the search engine optimization. I can do a bit of image editing with you if that would be of use. I'll give you a full service. A whole bunch of different packages are available. And also then, after the fact, teach you how to manage your own content going forward so that you will never be reliant on anyone else again to add pictures or to make changes to your website. So let me know if you want a spanking new website with Squarespace and email me at ben at Photo.com. So I always enjoy talking to Martin. He's always such an engaging person to listen to. His enthusiasm for and his love of photography is undimmed and I think that's always apparent when you talk to him. It was to me when we had this chat and uh, it generally is. So yeah, I hope you feel the same way and um, please enjoy this second full Small Voice Podcast episode with the one and only Mr. Martin Parr. I want to, I guess, really start with you. We should go back to the beginning and uh, you know i didn't really last time we spoke ask you too much about your kind of formative experiences uh, well it's well known that you had a kind of provincial childhood but you, what was the methodist angle was that from your um, parents or grandparents or what
1: no i definitely have uh, you know a methodist tradition in in the family so um my parents were both methodists so i went to methodist sunday school right ended up arguing with the teacher Right. Because uh, I've never been particularly uh, impressed with the, the idea of Christianity. Right. And uh, my grandfather was a Methodist lay preacher, but it was him that I went up to see in Yorkshire. And it was uh, really him that got me excited about photography in the first place. So he lent me a camera. We went out shooting together, mm. uh, came back, processed the film, made prints. So by the age of like 13, 14, I decided that's, that's what I'm going to do. Um, right. That is indeed what I've ended up doing yeah. for over fifty years now.
0: Yeah, and and because he was a member of the, of the Royal Photographic Society, so he was obviously pretty serious. Even though yeah, he was uh,
1: he was part of the what's called the bromoil circle, which I don't think exists now. Bromoil is a process where you you print the picture on uh, onto a matte paper uh, or one with the stipple on it, and then you you bleach the picture out, and then you re-ink it in, mm-hmm. and you can therefore adjust the uh, density of the ink. Uh, So it's basically like an early version of Photoshop. Hmm. So he would have this great big box. And in this box, there are another 10 uh, bromile prints. And you'd write a comment on the back. It would then be posted onto the next person, next photographer. And eventually, you know, nine months later, you'd get your own photo back with nine comments. People saying, you know, it's not quite right. The composition could be a bit better. You know, if you'd have just, you know, gone over there. And Mm. it's a bit dark up there. Perhaps you should lighten it. Yeah, so people made all these comments about these brome oils. So I was fascinated by this. And then he was in the the RPS Salon, which used to be in London. And I would go and see this and see his prints and uh, other people's prints, but very pictorial. Mm. And uh, in one sense, you could argue that the RPS really suppressed photography in the 40s and 50s and 60s because they were so dominant. And uh, it's interesting to look at places like France where a whole generation of photographers like... uh, uh, Oh God! I can't think of the names now. Mm -hmm. Who's the guy that did the kiss? Duano,
0: Robert Duano. Yeah. yeah.
1: So they they were emerging as being, you know, the sort of key players. Mm. And uh, with the exception of Bill Brandt, we were we were much more pictorial.
0: Mm -hmm. So, but you, you, it seems like. You kind of made a pretty pretty definite decision. Was it was it a bit of a kind of epiphany to you that you know this was the thing? Like it wasn't there wasn't any uh, um, kind of uh, ambivalence in your mind about whether that was something you wanted to pursue. No,
1: there was no doubt. I wanted yeah. to be a photographer. So the first thing you have to do is to apply to photo school. So uh, I built up a folio because I was taking pictures at, when I was at Surbiton Grammar, courtesy of the uh, my crafts teacher, <clears throat> who used to subscribe to Creative Camera. So I was getting to see these amazing pictures by the likes of Frank and Winogrand, especially the American ones. And I did pictures for the uh, magazine, the school magazine, which is the first time I ever got published, which is Mm. nice. Mm. And um, I applied to three places, Manchester, Derby and Farnham. And I got into all three. But when it came to the crunch, I only had one A level, and the only place that would accept me was Manchester.
0: All oh, right. So if you'd done better in the A levels, so you could have had, you would have had more choice. I'd have gone to Derby. Right.
1: So Derby was really my first choice because I remember uh, being very impressed when I went to to, to do my interview there. When you're in the third year, you shared a dark room mm. with one other photographer. So you had your own dark room, in effect, and you could smoke in the dark room. Right. And I thought this is the height of coolness. Yeah, of course. And uh, sadly, you don't smoke in Manchester Polytechnics dark rooms, and they're much bigger. You don't get one to yourself. Uh, so I ended up in Manchester. And of course, when I think back, if I had got that extra A level, mm. my whole life would be so different. Mm. So, in a sense, I'm quite grateful. Yeah,
0: well, let, let's think about the ways in which it might be. Then, so what, in in terms of the influence of Manchester on you and on your on your practices, what do you think the the kind of significant things factors are, as it were?
1: Well, we had a very good teacher uh, in the first year, a guy called Alan Murgatroyd, who was a photographer come filmmaker, and he and I immediately got on. And I think uh, it was he that really saw something in, in the work that I was doing. Because at the end of the year, they tried to throw me out because. I had failed my theory test. And this isn't cultural theory. This is literally theory, as in the case of reciprocity failure. Right, yeah. uh, And F-stops and things like that. And I was never very good at those technical things. But he argued strongly that I should be retained. And uh, I was retained in the end, thanks to him. And about three years ago, I did an exhibition at Manchester Art Gallery. I invited Alan Murgatroyd along to open the show and to sort of indicate the vindication of his uh mm. you know decision to keep me on marvelous and he you know i went on and did something
0: yeah what a great moment to have had that opportunity um but yeah who were your kind of peers at manchester that you that you sort of came up with though because that must have been another factor right to, to the people that you that you came along with for sure
1: yeah so in the year above me was brian griffin who yeah. we immediately got on very well and in my year was uh, Daniel Meadows. So, uh, you know, again, we not only got on well, but we actually did a project together called June Street, where we photographed uh, all the peoples in their living rooms in one yeah. street in Salford, originally potentially used for filming Coronation Street right. and about to be demolished. So that was a great project to work on. And we, we had competition. So uh, it, Brian and I would go to an event like uh, the ballroom dancing at Blackpool, Uh, Jackie Ward and Daniel would go to uh, something like Nutsford Carnival and uh, we'd get together and look at the pictures and judge them quite literally and we made uh, a sort of mock cup for who had the best pictures I think Brian and I won if I remember rightly <laughs> so yeah we, we almost you know, presented our own entertainment in terms of photography
0: mm, yeah and I guess you must have sort of you know there was a kind of mutual enthusiasm which you know you were kind of all in it together and, and uh, you know encouraging each other I suppose in a, in a way just in terms of the kind of excitement that you were, was being generated between you I suppose so after Manchester, eventually you went to Hebden Bridge up, That's up right. north.
1: That's right, yeah. Well, actually, straight across rather than up north.
0: Well, straight across, of course, yeah. yeah. I always forget how far north Manchester is. I think of it as being kind of somewhere in the in the middle. So it's my knowledge of British geography is very poor, nearly as bad as my uh, knowledge of photo books and 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 the history of photography, which you tested me on last time. But, um, yeah, let's talk about Hebden Bridge. I think it was also a kind of influential experience, but it wasn't necessarily all easy plain sailing as it were
1: so what happened was that as four of us went out to hepton bridge and we uh, start we rented a place from the council uh, there was a a, a painter a, a bicycle mechanic surprisingly an architect and myself and uh, the albert street workshop which is where this is held on as you went into the albert street workshop on the right hand side there was a wall where i pin up the pictures i was taking uh, and this was a continually changing exhibition of my images of in and around Hebden Bridge. And at that point, also, I'd met up with Susie. She was uh, uh, basically, she'd moved to Hebden Your Bridge wife. as well. The wife, we, we got married when we went to Ireland because we were a bit worried in 1980 that you'd have to, you know, a, an unmarried couple might be a bit dodgy. Right, right. But we've been living together very happily for over 45 years. So mm. it, it's quite a relationship. And she and I... Basically, we were starting to explore the subjects, particularly non-conformist chapels. And uh, there was one chapel in particular that we uh, uh, focus in on called Crimsworth of Dean. It's about five miles away from the centre of Hebden Bridge. A small chapel and the, the congregation were the local farmers. And we met all the farmers. We went to photograph them. Uh, we met uh, these, um, this amazing couple, Charlie and Sarah Hannah uh, Greenwood, in their farmyard called Thurish. And I remember going up there when it was snowy, and we would take supplies up, and we taped them. We made interviews with them, and it was a bit like stepping back fifty years. So they were quite a remarkable couple. Mm. And then Susie ended up basically teaching the Sunday school, which is quite strange given that she wasn't actually a Christian, right? And in the end, what was interesting is that. Uh, Stanley Greenwood, who is like the elder of the chapel, he assumed that our interest in the chapel was to actually continue and to keep it going. You know, what they needed was younger people involved. And in the end, uh, we couldn't do that. You know, we were never going to be members of the chapel. Mm. And indeed, we then moved to Ireland. So I think, it, you know, there was some disappointment from their side about that decision. Mm. And I think it teaches you really that yeah. uh, however involved you are, you, you're always an outsider. right And... uh you know, that very much struck me as, uh, you know, as this incident sort of played out in front of us. Mm. But it was an amazing time. And uh, it's interesting that we only did the book about 10 years ago, uh, called The Nonconformists. And here, uh, we we're able to include Susie's writing, uh, I think she writes very well. And uh, not only does it talk about the non-conformist chapels we also went to a a drift mine and we talk about that a guy that used to produce uh, minerals you know fizzy pop who lived in todmorden Uh, so it's a great opportunity for uh, the combination of her writing and my photography Mm. to finally be
0: published so those pictures hadn't been put in a book before now no um, 10 years ago
1: no one wanted to publish it right you know i went round i went to see the sunday times magazine they said if this was in colour, we'd use it. Right. So it was very difficult, really, to get people interested in this work. Mm. Um, but by that time, I had actually found a, a New York dealer. So in fact, uh, I used to go to New York and have shows of these of these black and white images, not only from Hebden Bridge but also from Ireland. So she was called Marjorie Nykrog. She's no longer with us, but uh, it, it shows that uh, there was interest, interest outside yeah, yeah. outside of the UK.
0: Right, right and then yeah so you went to ireland because susie your wife was got a job there that is basically what the reason for it was
1: that's right so she got a job to start the first uh, speech therapy service in county leitrim county is the poorest county in ireland so it's quite an uphill challenge so we moved there we were actually living in uh, boyle near in Rosscommon, which is very near to leitrim and then she would go around to the different uh, uh, you know places so monday was manor Hamilton carrick shannon was wednesday or something and in fact my notepaper consisted we couldn't get a phone you see so my notepaper consisted of, of all the different numbers uh, so if you wanted to contact me you know here i was trying to be a freelance photographer you'd have to phone Manor hamilton 17 on monday and talk to susie <laughs> and then in the evening i'd roll up with my uh, you know a bag full of 5p coins to feed into the into the uh, into the into the phone so it is impossible, really, for me to actually get any work.
0: Yeah, I was going to say. So, but you, you genuinely would try and yeah be a jobbing sort of editorial f- photographer at that point. That um, <laughs> sounds like you had you're up against it though in terms of that logistics. I suppose even then you probably w- needed to be in London or somewhere like that in order. Yeah, to I think quite likely.
1: Well, Dublin would have been okay. Oh, Dublin I think. would have been okay. Yeah, but I did do a bit of teaching at the National College of Art and Design. But apart from that. Uh, but, you know, I wasn't basically earning anything. So Susie was the main breadwinner then. Mm. and But it did give me the opportunity to go out and photograph extensively. Mm. Uh, and I did a, you know, it's almost the last big project I did in black and white. Uh, it was published eventually, I think, in 1984. Uh, uh, and it had a show at the uh, Orchard Gallery in Derry. And we did a book. We, we f- I found Fintan O'Toole, who is this young... Up-and-coming writer who was working for in Dublin, and he wrote the text. And we've just recently done another Irish book uh, because I've gone back over the years to Ireland, so I've got different sort of images from different decades. And uh, he did the text for that book as well. And the book is called uh, "From the Pope to a Flat White" because I went to the Pope's visit before I actually moved to Ireland in '79, and then I went back to Dublin in 2019. To photograph the gentrification of dublin and all the influence of these big american uh, companies internet companies coming in and having their european headquarters in dublin oh, yeah, because the tax rate was very beneficial to them
0: you've got companies like apple and you know huge huge uh facebook they're all
1: there but i couldn't get in they wouldn't let me in to photograph them uh, i mean the guy who was helping me who was the producer he was best mates with the guy that runs facebook and you think with a contact like that, yeah. you know, doors would open. But, but no, no, no they're very paranoid <laughs> yeah. about having uh, any pictures taken inside.
0: Mm, I can understand that. Yeah, and, and so I guess you were sort of busy kind of working on your pra- you know, just sort of trying to improve and trying to establish your style in a way. I mean, obviously, you're still working in black and white at that point. Uh, ultimately, from Ireland, you moved to Liverpool. Again, I think because of your wife, Susie's uh, job. So you you again were sort of tagging along, as it were.
1: Yeah, she got a job as a speech therapist in Liverpool. And we decided we would try and find a house uh, overlooking the water of the Mersey in Wallasey, which we did. And then just down the road was uh, New Brighton. And uh, I'd already been to New Brighton before and shot some pictures in black and white and really was taken with it. It, mm. it just had an atmosphere there that I thought was quite unique. It was shabby, a bit run down, but yet it was very busy because uh, all the people from Liverpool go to New Brighton for the weekend or for the day out with the kids. Uh, And it's that combination that, in fact, uh, really pulled me in. And it's just at the time that uh, the ploughbell had been introduced in the UK and uh, Peter Fraser, for example, another friend of mine, obviously worked in colour, had bought one. And uh, I I thought, this is the camera to get, because Mm. I'd seen the uh, serious colour photography coming from the States it 's uh, Eggleston, that generation. And also I, I'd been very impressed with uh, Peter Mitchell's show, A New Refutation of Viking Fall, which was in 1979. And th- this was the first time a photographer in the UK had actually done a colour show. And uh, it was interesting because uh, back in the day then, people were just were thrown by this idea of someone working in colour in documentary and they didn't know what to make of it. Right. Uh, so I thought well I'm gonna have a go at this and uh, I got myself a flash gun it meant I could then photograph you know during the lunchtime mm. when often you know the light isn't good in the traditional sense of photography yeah I spent three seasons working on this project and finally got the book the last resort and then Tom Wood and I showed the work at Open Eye Gallery
0: because Tom lived lived he was a neighbor of yours wasn't he at that yes point? he
1: yeah. was he was just down the road yeah, yeah li- <laughs> quite literally. So, yeah, we became great friends. And, of course, he's a, he's a great photographer. Yeah. And um, interestingly, when our work was shown in Liverpool at the Open Eye, no one really batted an eyelid because people know what New Brighton's like. Mm. But those same pictures, when they were shown at the Serpentine uh, a few months later, really caused an uproar. And this is when people said, how dare this middle-class photographer come along and exploit the working classes? Mm. And it became quite a controversial thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, kind of famously controversial moment. But, I mean, in, in, were, were you anticipating it in any way or did it come completely out of the blue that that was uh, you know, the subject of, of criticism?
1: I had an inkling there'd be uh, you know, controversy
0: yeah. emerging from it. And, and in the end,
1: I didn't think it was a bad thing. It, I guess it basically brought attention to the work mm. and I'd always defend it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think uh, anyone has the right, whatever class they come from, to photograph wherever they want hmm. but what it did make me think about was I want to do a project about the middle classes because right. uh, I am middle class I was doing well during this time it was in the Thatcher regime I almost felt guilty about doing well under really? Mrs Thatcher
0: yeah because so many people were not
1: and it struck me when I looked at the sum total of British documentary photography the middle classes were just missing right. they weren't there they weren't recorded uh, so I thought uh, okay I must move Uh, So Susie uh, looked for jobs in the south of England. uh, We thought about Brighton or Bristol, and one in Bristol came up. She got the job, and then we moved to Bristol, and I've been here ever since. Mm. But for the next three years, I was photographing in Bristol and Bath, which eventually became the project called The Costs of Living. And, um, you know, by that time, by the way, I'd moved from a wide-angle ploughbell to a a standard-lens ploughbell. So I changed Mm. my way of shooting. And whenever I do a new project, it's always good to sort of change the technique. Uh, you know, it, it really helps you sort of think and focus your thoughts on how you're going to interpret this. So it's quite different shooting on a standard lens to a wide angle, yeah, but uh, perhaps it's more of a challenge, but I enjoy doing it. And mm. that's basically how the Cost of Living show came. It, was, it started in Bath and then went to the Museum of Modern Art in Oxford. So very near to the people that I was um, recording.
0: Mm. And you're on sort of s- safer territory photographing within your own class as it were, you know, where was the criticism going to come from? But this this whole issue of who's allowed to photograph who I think is uh, as much on the agenda now as it ever was, if not more so I think, you know. And, I think uh, you're right. I'm just wondering what your take on that is Um clearly you feel strongly that it shouldn't be, uh, it shouldn't be an issue in a way.
1: That's correct. No, yeah. I think uh, we're all entitled to photograph whoever we like but You know, people are more aware these days of, uh, you know, misrepresentation and what are these pictures for? You know, uh, I'm often asked this and uh, I basically say I'm I'm recording whatever it is I'm in front of. But, you know, you do meet people, of course, and especially if you go to uh, like a race meeting or to one of the sort of big uh, uh, events like Ascot and Henley you know, people often ask what you're doing. And then you get into these amazing encounters and banter. Mm. And that's, in fact, because of this banter that sort of started to emerge. That's why I did some filming about 20 years ago. No, 15 years ago. And I did a film called Think of England, where I literally was recording the banter that, oh, right. that I sort of came across yeah these people and uh, that's what made the film interesting
0: mm, mm. because you know generally speaking when you're actually in the moment and you're the one doing the photography um the people that you're um, photographing for the most part are pretty pretty happy to to be i mean they'll, they'll soon make it known if they're not i suppose and then you can you know just simply um walk away you know quietly but um yeah, I don't know. Um, there's, there's, there's so many issues now around, uh, you know, if portrait photographers are, you know, is person A allowed to take a picture of person B? Um, and if not, then, you know, there's some reason why not. It's very much uh, it's very much um, on the agenda as, a, as an issue in photography now.
1: It is. But I think when you do a an actual portrait of someone, you know, they, they generally are quite flattered. Yeah. They're always surprised when I say to them, please don't smile. Yeah. You know, because they want to smile. Because that's how we're, you know, that's how portraits are sort of perceived by most people. Uh, But in fact, if you look at the magazines, you'll note that no one really is smiling much. Yeah. And uh, you know, when I am doing a portrait like that, I you try and send the person a picture back as a thank you. And uh, I've never people often ask me, do you get model releases? I don't. No. I think if I've asked someone if I can do a portrait. that's that to me is consent yeah and if you're in the public place you can actually do whatever you like with these pictures as long as you don't use them for say advertising or a commercial uh outlet you know you're perfectly entitled to to print them to publish them to do whatever you like Mm, with them
0: mm. yeah 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 absolutely you know it's more a question of a kind of ethical uh, concern rather than the sort of letter of the law but again i i think yes yeah it was going to be something that people are talking about for a lot for years to come still um and uh, it's certainly interesting but um i think you know, a lot of photographers would definitely take your position on, on on you know what's okay and what isn't but
1: then you do get these people who object you know this is an occupational hazard yeah. that us photographers have to put up with And it's one reason why so many people can't photograph on the street. They're just intimidated by this. They Mm. find it too difficult. Mm. And uh, the last thing you should be doing is, after you've taken the photo, turning around and feeling and looking guilty in front of that person. So I always, when I'm doing pictures and I'm trying to do it candidly, I never really look at the subject matter after I've taken it. Right. And, you know, often I'm working at places like an art opening or a fashion show, and people expect to have cameras there. You know, it's... uh, it's, I guess it's when you're walking down the street uh, that when it's more difficult yeah, because that's you don't expect. But the thing that this thing that's happening now is these phones are such great quality. Uh, I mean, I'm always thinking, you know, when do I actually scrap the DSLR and go to a phone? Mm. You know, because you can almost get the same quality these days, and and a phone looks much less threatening. Yes, so yes. you can fiddle around with that and pretend to be taking a picture and. Uh, you know, it's uh, no one is threatened by a right. phone because everyone's got them. Exactly. And they're out all the time.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's more uh, accepted that, yeah, it's not a kind of serious undertaking if you're using one of those in some way. And, you know, like you mentioned the ploughbell, but we were talking before about how it's almost, you know, you can think in terms of the ploughbell generation. There was a whole generation of people, maybe, or even more than one generation of people. Um, who who would you sort of include in that list? Cause well, I
1: think uh, the ploughbell generation morphed into the um, Farnham generation, if you like, mm. because I was teaching at Farnham together with Paul Graham and occasionally Keith Arnett. And uh, a lot of photographers emerged from that time. You know, Anna Fox, uh, uh, Ken Grant, uh, David Moore. uh, Yeah, there there are many names. And, um, you know, I always think, because most of these people now are, uh, you know, really either professors of photography or running courses. Paul Seawright was one of the ones. Uh, He's now deputy vice chancellor at Ulster University. Mm. So I think, um, you know, many of those were working with medium format, not necessarily the plowbell, but I think that Farnham generation from the '80s and the establishment of color photography, because with the exception of Ken Grant, they all worked in, uh, in, mm. in color
0: mm. and um, John Hind, you also mentioned in the past where does John Hind fit into into it for you
1: well i when I was at uh, college i 'd gone and worked at at Butlin 's as a first year as a black and white walkie with Daniel Meadows, mm. and I think we we eventually did a small show. Of that at the Impressions Gallery. And then, secondly, I came back as a color walkie. And that meant you were able to go into the Beachcomber Bar. Uh, and the Beachcomber Bar was this highly colored uh, environment. And every half hour there was a thunderstorm. <laughs> and the lights would go down. You could buy a cocktail there. And, uh, y- y- you know, because I was a walkie at night, you know, this is where you would actually earn some money because. You know, people didn't know how to take these pictures mm. in this crazy a walkie, situation. That's what they called. That's, that's what, what we were called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And I remember earning forty quid a week or something, which is
0: pretty good back in uh, back in the day. Yeah, yeah. And then now another kind of inflection point though was that um, the stuff from the Last Resort ended up at the Isle Photo Festival in France. Yes. Um, and um, that was obviously a, quite a big moment. And um, and it was um, Francois Abel who. Took that stuff to Arles and what what kind of impact did that have?
1: Well, that really opened up things. So I was no longer just sort of known in the UK, but it opened it up to Europe. You know, so Francois Habel turned out to be one of these people that I had a long and uh, healthy relationship with. That was our first real encounter, and uh, by that time, people were buying the prints in France and Germany. I had a show at the Folkwang, and it basically opened up. So no longer. Was I restricted to the rather sort of, uh, you know, uh, enclosed world of British photography, but to, to the, you know, to the, to the Europeans. And when I went to Arles, I couldn't believe it because mm. here was this festival, you know, 20 shows at that point. Everyone there interested in the photography. It just blew my mind. I couldn't believe
0: how great this was. There was nothing remotely like that in the UK. At nothing the at all. No. So it was a big, a big deal to sort of be, be represented there
1: there was Salford 80 uh, right. briefly as a photography festival but nothing on the scale of Arles because of course Arles is about meeting people yeah, you yeah. meet in the square you have a drink you eat people you go then to the uh, uh, to the for the showings in the uh, amphitheatre it's just a fantastic and I've been to Arles many times since and in fact Francois Habel then invited me in 2004 uh, to be the artistic director which is a fantastic privilege it was my first big curating job and mm. uh, you know, uh, I, I think I did a very nice show. I brought in many people who hadn't had their show before, like Rinko Kowachi, mm. and who was a big star of that particular festival. And uh, it was an amazing experience having this opportunity to, to uh, curate 26 shows in one go. Yeah,
0: amazing. Yeah. And so, and, but in terms of your um, show, Last Resort show, what year was that? 86. 86, okay. And, um, and but had you already joined Magnum at that point? Uh, I'd already no that
1: comes later. So in eighty nine, right. I made my first uh, application to join Magnum. Right. I, so. I was big friends with with David Hearn because I'd done teaching at, at Newport. I knew Peter Marlow, Chris Perkins, the sort of uh, and Stuart Franklin, the stalwart photographers who were based in London, who who then opened a London office. Mm. And in fact, Neil Burgess, the guy that put on my show at Open Eye, uh, ended up being the working for Magnum in London. So. I first tried to become what's called a nominee. It's the first mm. level of membership in 89. And that's when all hell let loose. And, uh, you know, I became the most controversial photographer ever to join or attempt to join Magnum. Mm. And the arguments, you know, for and against me were quite um, lurid and vicious. <laughs> I wasn't there in the room, of course. No. But uh, this is reported back to me. Yeah. So I did get, though because to become a nominee, you need 50% of the votes. So I did become uh, a nominee. And then I became an associate. And then... When I was making my final application in, I think ninety four to become uh, a member, you know, Philip Jones Griffiths wrote this letter saying, you know, if Martin Parr's admitted, it's the downfall of Magnum, right? And he is a fascist, and you know, it was completely over the top. Mm. And um, Peter Marler was the president, and the meeting was in London. I was at home in Bristol, and he phoned me and said, uh, "Oh, Martin, you know, good news, you're in." Oh, and wow. then I thought, great, this is excellent, and then. Uh, Half an hour later, he phoned up to say someone else had arrived to the meeting and they voted against me. And if I was out <laughs> and uh, and then eventually they got um, they got Burke Lynn wheeled in from hospital. He had food poisoning and wasn't feeling at all good. And he came in and voted for me. And therefore I was in. So. You know, I scraped in by one vote, but right. you know, sixty-six percent is not a bad percentage. You know, in politics, that's regarded as a landslide. Right,
0: exactly. Yeah, it was a bit of an emotional roller coaster having to go through those kind of cha- sudden, abrupt changes of. Uh, of fortune or seeming change of fortune but who so who were the ones who were championing championing you though who were you well there be the london
1: based photographers right uh, and then people the, like harry greer susan michels
0: they got it in a way that yeah, that yeah. philip jones griffiths didn't i suppose mm-hmm. you could say well, yeah. I, mean, well I, mean, d- I mean
1: interestingly i'd worked with philip uh, back in the day when i was a black and white photographer we did a workshop together, and we got on really well. Mm. So it wasn't because he didn't like my personality. Sure. He just didn't like my photos.
0: Right, fair enough, yeah.
1: But I don't see why, you know, not only a shabby seaside resort or, um, uh, you know, a supermarket, which I was also doing at that time, you know, why this is so difficult as a subject matter when he's going out to war and photographing people dead, half mm. dead, mm. injured, mm. you know. I mean, the things that he photographed are pretty brutal, in fact. Yeah. And that is not questioned. And that's always the thing that's interesting to me. Why question me going to a supermarket or a beach resort and not
0: question someone going to a war or a famine? Mm. That's a good point. I mean, I wish he was still around. We could uh, talk to him about that issue. But, um, yeah, yeah, I guess people weren't used to that kind of subject matter. Uh, And, you know, war and conflict has always been a kind of, a kind of standard, um, you know, part of the the sort of photojournalistic repertoire, whereas supermarkets not so much. I mean, they are now, but that's partly because you were were you know one of the people who who kind of started that.
1: Uh, an interesting following on from this, you know, I've just come back from Paris, from Paris Photo, where the opening of a show called Reconciliation took part. <clears throat> so this show is about uh, Cartier-Bresson, who basically, when I did my show of tourism. In 1992, came along to the opening. It was Centre National de Photography as run by Robert Delpierre. Mm. And uh, he got very angry with these pictures. And he went home that night and he wrote this angry fax saying, I, I don't really know you, but when I look at your pictures, you look as if you come from another planet. So I got this fax and I thought, wow, this is, this is great. I love this. So I replied, I understand your point of view, but why shoot the messenger? And that was a sort of famous incident. And interestingly, uh, what, Cartier-Bresson had done in the 60s he'd come to the UK and he'd done a film uh, for ITV in fact and for this he shot lots of still pictures first in the industrial north and then secondly in Blackpool and Francois Herbel who is now the director of the Cartier-Bresson Foundation it's the last show he's going to do there so in a sense it's a nice closure of our relationship together Uh, he decided to put on this show called Reconciliation because after this incident, Martine Frank, the wife of Cartier-Bresson, invited me round to lunch, and we got on, and it was fine. And he was there or not? He was there, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, since then, after that, you know, he was alive another 10 years. Yeah. We had a very cordial relationship. Uh, but what's happened is that Francois invited me to put some of my pictures in from not only Blackpool, but from Northern Industry. So we've got these my set of colour pictures, his set of black and white pictures and hence the title reconciliation right. and that's currently on at the Cartier-Bresson Foundation if anyone in, finds themselves yeah. in Paris
0: well you were just at Paris photo literally at the weekend and I, was it was that the opening or you were there to yes sort of, in yeah. that week we had yeah. the
1: opening on the Monday yeah
0: right yeah. right interesting and that was the and that was the we're talking about the pictures from small world basically was the 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 book that um, No no so the pictures I presented I mean sorry I'm, I'm sorry I have completely gone out where where are you concentrate the, concentrate. Um, the um the the pictures <laughs> that we were the pictures that we were talking about before we were talking about reconciliation was, the, was small, small world, world yes yeah yeah, yeah which is
1: um, small world is my my project on tourism uh, uh, tourism yeah which yeah, is con- ongoing I started it in black and white called beauty spots and then it morphed into uh, into small world mm-hmm. and it's a project uh, we're now on the third edition of that book and uh, I continue to accumulate pictures of tourism. I mean, I'm just waiting for tourism to get back up to where it was, po- you know, before the pandemic. It's, mm. but I imagine in I didn't go to Venice last summer, but I imagine it's it's already packed Mm-mm. and rammed. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Venice has always been one of the places I love to photograph because it's drowning in tourists yeah. and all the issues about tourism and the damage it's doing. Is is very uh, very much in the forefront there.
0: Yeah, drowning drowning being the, the appropriate uh, word there. But again, I mean, you know we, I, we did this last time and you made the point that you can't we can't really speculate about what what people who are no longer with us meant. But uh, you know, even the small world stuff It seems to me that, okay, yes, uh, apart from the fact that it's in in colour, I would have thought it would be in, you know, in the kind of Cartier-Bresson tradition in a lot of ways. And I I find it strange that he would see it as so alien, you know. I would have thought he would have related to it, apart from, of course, you know, the the colour versus black and white thing.
1: Well, what was interesting with this show is, if you look at my pictures done in the same places that he took pictures, It's very similar. He was looking for the same things as I was. You know, you go around a factory, you focus in on someone who's got a picture of Elvis above their workstation. Uh, You go to uh, Blackpool, you photograph, you know, uh, you photograph the hen parties, you photograph people lying around on the beach. So it's exactly the same. So in fact, the difference between us is much smaller. I think it's just the fact that it was in colour and it was flash and it was very vibrant colour. That's right. the thing that got them going. That could be it enough. reminded them of of uh, you know, commercial work. Right. And of course the language of that actually it really comes from commercial photography. Right. You know, because um that bright you know, so I always think it's my duty as a photographer to try and entice the viewer in mm. with a brightly coloured picture, if you like. Mm. And then if there's any meaning behind it, that's later to be found. If you so desire. Mm. If people just like the pretty colours, I'm quite happy.
0: Yeah. So I guess that's what it, it comes down to is that you applied the aesthetic from a different type of photography or to get a different genre of photography, i.e. Like commercial photography, and and applied it to, you know, more of a documentary approach. That's and, right. And also, simple, yeah. simple formula. Yeah, yeah. And also, I suppose, you know, you've got a different sensibility. I mean, you're coming at everything from a like a provincial, middle-class English point of view. He's a kind of wealthy, you know, comes from a wealthy, to, well-to-do French family. So, you know, I mean, that's what... F- that's what photographers do you know they bring their own sensibility to what they shoot I mean that's 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 what it's about right
1: absolutely I mean part also of what uh, my relationship with the UK and uh, if I look at my archive of you know say 60,000 images that are on magnum uh, probably half of them are taken in the UK Uh, and for me you know photography is a form of therapy Mm. you know because there are things about this country that I love of course, we all love our own countries, however bad it is. We're sort of, we're always, you know, that's yeah. why if you go to someone like Albania, you know, within a, a day of arriving there, the TV crews are saying, "What do you think of Albania? Mm-mm. What do you think of Albanian photography?" I have no idea. Yeah. You know, I've just arrived, but they want you to say,
0: "I love it," basically. Exactly. But, yeah. yeah, they yeah. need you to say that.
1: But I mean, when I think, for example, you know, some of the bigotry and the and the prejudice that's in this country. And of course, Brexit. You know mm. what a total disaster that mm. is. The little Englander
0: kind of um, ethos, or, or again, you know, disposition. Yeah, is is hard to stomach for those of us who find who, yeah, who find that um, offensive. Offensive, basically. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So that
1: tension, I think, helps me to think about this country. And if I can get, uh, if you like, both sides of the story or uh, you know, something in the picture that. Uh, you know pivots and can go either way it's a you know it's it's an arbitrary you know it's a contradiction mm. these things i like to introduce whenever possible
0: mm. no, i love that because i just brought to mind what occurs to me is that you know all all good stories require some conflict and there's conflict within your images you know in a way so that that follows that works because the conflict is there but you know all within the same frame in a way yeah you know. for sure yeah, yeah that's uh your, ambi- your ambivalence towards the subject matter is part of what makes it interesting. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so and then, like you went to um, in in the nineties, you got a gig at, in Hels- Helsinki, a teaching gig, which sort of opened up that part of the the world to you. And you did a bit of um, well, you certainly worked in that vicinity. You didn't shoot there, but you you travelled around a bit.
1: Yeah. So between nineteen ninety and ninety two, uh, I had this. Uh, uh, visiting professorship, I had to go there something like 10 weeks a year, so five lots of two weeks. And in those weekends I would go and take myself to uh, you could get the train, literally to St. Petersburg, and also you can get the ferry across to Tallinn. And they were just literally emerging from their communist uh, rule. Right. And I photographed all these amazing bars and supermarkets. It, you know, it, it's, it's incredible how much they've changed, of course, because I recently went to, and did a show uh, I went and recently did a show back in Tallinn, and uh, we showed the my pictures. And you know, this is only like thirty years later. It's like another world. Yeah, you know, there's nothing recognisable of that uh, era left anymore. Right?
0: Yeah, because the timing was such that, as you say, you know, the, the the wall had just come down relatively recently. It was the the breakup of the Soviet Union, and the, those different places trying to. F- just trying to emerge from that, trying to find some kind of identity and that kind of thing. You were there, absolutely. At that and, and
1: interestingly, they, uh, the school invited Boris Mikhailov over a few times. He was literally living in Karviv still, and uh, that's when I met him. And we've always um, got on fine, and mm. we've always compared my last resort pictures to his salt leg pictures. Mm. And you know, we've just everyone's come back from Paris, went to see the Mikhailov show. It's quite an astonishing show at the U- European Maison of Photography. And uh, of course, included there are the Salt Lake pictures, mm. but it's a fantastic show.
0: Mm. Okay, great. Well, I, I, again, as usual, I'll put I'll put references to all we, all these people in in the in the show notes, so people can <coughs> can check them out if they're not familiar with with who we're talking about. But uh, you also, and at that point, you know, again, you were you were sort of a jobbing editorial photographer, but you must be you were quite in demand, I think, because you know, th- you know, the last resort and everything that happened subsequent to that, and of course, being in Magnum all helped
1: absolutely so i was able then to get commissions in a way i hadn't even dreamt of before mm. and that's one of the advantages of being a magnum and uh, we've just published a book called chew stoke which is literally the biggest uh, editorial assignment i've ever had it's for a full year and i photographed this village about eight miles away from bristol uh for a f- you know for this f- full calendar year in in 1992 uh, we had a, they had a very good writer who was assigned to this, uh, job and we went down there together and photographed everything during the full year. And then at the end in 93, we did an exhibition in February in the village hall. Uh, the magazine was published. Everyone came along the Friday night to get a free copy of the mag, 16 pages. You know, can you imagine? That was the Telegraph-, Telegraph
0: magazine. That was right. As- Cause the
1: Telegraph had a very good, uh, art director called, uh, Michael Collins, mm. And he was always dipping into art photography to try and get different type of commissions done from the usual sort of photojournalist. Yeah, and some of the things he did were, were fantastic. Yeah, it was a great era to be working for a magazine like that. Well,
0: extraordinary. I mean, who even then t- to have a whole year of of, of commission? You know, it, I mean, unprecedented. But but now just completely uh, unthinkable. Um, but what was their angle? Was it supposed to be a sort of portrait of a, of a typical British? country yeah I mean interestingly village.
1: John Hine did a project called uh, Exmoor Village and we went back to that village and thought Let, this is interesting let's go and see what's happened to that village but it was a National Trust village so basically it was in, you know preserved as it was you know back in the 18th century mm. so we then had to try and think of a village around Bristol so I went to circled round and we found uh, Chew Stoke it had a uh, had a post office it had a shop it had a school had two pubs so it ticked every box. Mm-hmm. So that's why we went there. Yeah, and, and, and literally the book has just come out of those pictures published 30 years later.
0: Yeah, by R.I.B. Books, who are based here in Bristol. Um, and you must have been in your element. That was just such a, you know, a tailor-made... Well, clearly there was a reason why that you were the one who got commissioned to do it. But, uh, yeah, you must have enjoyed the hell out of that to be able to...
1: Oh, it's fantastic. And by the end of the year, you know, we knew a lot of people. We could almost knock on any house... And they would know what we're up to, and they, they'd let us in. So right. it was it was a great project.
0: Have you got a copy of that magazine somewhere? Oh, we have, yeah. Okay. yeah.
1: We even sell it on the Martin Power Foundation site.
0: Oh, really? Yeah, at oh, a premium. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, right. Amazing. Um, now, tell me a little bit about um, Signs of the Times, because this was um, another thing that you got involved with here in the UK. And... Um, a TV project not not a, a photography project but you obviously were brought in as a as the photographer how did how what was that about that's right
1: so uh, nicholas barker had seen my show the Cost of the living which is at the photographers gallery uh, he was uh, you know an up and coming uh, TV film director and uh, he contacted me and said, I'm about to do this, this project called Signs of the Times. It's looking at people's taste.
0: Mm. And the cost of living was about, was the, was the net result of your interest in the middle, middle classes. That's right. Yeah. That was the middle class yeah. show. Yeah. Uh,
1: and uh, part of his target audience or target uh, people he wanted to find were the middle classes. So he put out adverts saying, if you're a couple and you argue with each other, you know, please get in touch. So all these people got in touch. Another one would be, if, if you're a mother and you're, pass on your tasty, your daughter. You know, please get in touch. So these people got in touch. He would then select the people to to film, and uh, he would ask them all these questions. You know, either independently or, or together. And then afterwards, I would go in and take photos, uh, portraits of the people still lies around the house. And then he and I sat down together and put different quotes underneath these uh, photographs. Uh, and the great thing was that it was shown on BBC Two. It was controversial some people hated it, some people loved it and in fact I think you can still see his influence in terms mm. of the style uh, that he adopted of you know very still camera, people talking uh, you know the sort of uh, you know the, those sort of nodding heads Yeah,
0: you yeah, talking head kind of yeah very straightforward, yeah no no movement, you just let people speak really. And-
1: exactly and we had a series of posters first on Art in the Underground in, in London and then in ad shell sites around the country so mm. it, the great thing for me was it, it we got out of the photographic ghetto. I mean, I'm very happy in the photo ghetto because mm. I'm a member of it. But it's great sometimes to have this opportunity to do projects where you expand your audience and uh, you know you go beyond the you go yeah, beyond yeah. the ghetto.
0: Yeah, but is it was it like how does one notice when that's happened? Like, was it tangible? What what were the sort of tangible benefits uh, from having that wider exposure to to the you know the? Well, I think
1: uh, the, the series became controversial, mm. uh, so people were talking about it. And I think, uh, you know, seeing the posters around the place would remind people that it's on. Mm. Uh, and, you you know, in a sense, this is back in the day when we didn't have the huge choices that we have now of uh, of television. You know, so it, it was one of the four, one of the five channels that existed. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I think it just became, it became part of the sort of national consciousness yeah. for people to talk about it.
0: And what, the people who didn't like it, what was their objection? Did they f- they think that they were being again condescended to, or something.
1: Some people objected to their uh, renditions; very few, but uh, few did. And that's almost inevitable when you do these sort of pairings. Yeah. You know, people can think that this is exploitation, and there, there is a there is some truth in that sort of uh, criticism. Yeah, I would argue. Yeah, but most people, you know, you can't remember. You've got to remember all these people writing in and they were very disappointed if they weren't chosen to be filmed. Right, yes. So, you know, they were desperate to be on the telly. Yeah. They'd volunteered. You know, the rules were very much explained. We're going to take your quotes and put them under the photo. So, the, the you know, so basically if someone objected, they hadn't read the rules.
0: Right, right. And then so like coming forward a bit further then, um, the other project that I wanted to ask you about was Common Sense, which I think was sort of 99 um tell me about that one because again you sort of you're talking about how before that you like to change change your your approach to some extent every time you do a new project and this one was was no exception you got very close in and and i guess you were working almost in a macro kind of a way
1: that's right so in 1995 i bought this uh, new setup it's a uh, it's a ring flash that's a flash that goes around the lens and a macro lens so you can You can come in very close. So it looks like uh, almost studio lighting. Mm. And uh, the first project I decided to do was on British food because British food is a subject that, uh, you know, the the Europeans think British food is terrible. But, of (laughs) course, we've undergone a great uh, renaissance in food and it looks much better. But I went out of my way to find the worst examples of British food. And then I started photographing cliches, something else you're not really meant to do. So I thought of let's go to six European countries Think of the cliches that they uh, they're, they're represented by and photograph them.
0: Right, right. And all
1: these pictures came together into this project called Common Sense. And the great thing about that was we had a show in London, but we also had a show in forty-three other locations around around the world, literally in Africa, in North America, in Australia, in New Zealand. And then we actually got a, a you know a Guinness Book of Records. Mm. Mention for having the most shows from around the world in one go. Yeah. And so, people were sent you know, a set of 250 or 350 laser copies and they just put it up however they wanted. Right. And the only condition was that they send us installation shots. Mm. So we've got shots of all the shows that went up.
0: So it was a kind of deliberately lo-fi kind of a, a, of approach, but a way to... Yeah, have kind of maximum exposure in a way. Like it, yeah, it, you know. it, it was a great thing
1: to do. And, it you know, it was fun. And, and this is organised uh, uh, through Magnum London office with Brigitte Lardinos, who is not there anymore. But uh, it, it was it was a fantastically exciting project. Yeah. I tried to go to as many of the openings as possible. Some right. of the ones that were in commercial galleries actually sold the laser copies. Otherwise, everyone else just tore them up and put them in the bin.
0: Right, OK. Or actually yeah.
1: saved them. I'm sure there's some laser copies up there that uh, the people have nabbed from these yeah. exhibitions
0: but that was probably quite, I'm not sure if anyone had done anything like that before but it, it, it moves away from this idea that you know uh, an exhibition has to be you know these kind of very precious prints and beautifully done and beautifully framed and you know there's a, there's a much more kind of democratic uh, <laughs> approach in a way but Yeah, I like that. I like the fact that you you kind of tried something different, I suppose.
1: And in 2010, when I did the Brighton Biennale as as the artistic curator, uh, we didn't use a single frame. Mm. We pinned every photo up. We printed everything and we pinned everything up. And uh, I like this idea of a a photo festival with no frames. Yeah. So, yeah, sometimes I like to sort of have these ideas and try and push them through and try and do something different, basically. Mm. Mm. It's exciting to do things differently.
0: Yeah, and you sort of move move things along, and you know maybe set a new precedent. I mean, now it's much more common for that to to be the way to do it, and you know you can get a really decent quality print out of an inkjet printer now. So you know, I guess that I guess that's in a way more democratic, it's much uh, less expensive than having to make a proper.
1: But I, I like uh, the fact that photography is high and low culture. So yeah, these same pictures you know which are pasted on the walls of literally sometimes on the walls outside the gallery would the same picture would be sort of blown up uh, to a meter by a meter and a half and hung in the Tate gallery mm-hmm. you know i like the idea that these images can have a destiny high and low you know that's that's one of the great advantages of photography is, yeah. is democratic sort of pull and the fact that you can do so many things with it you know people come to me uh, you know we we are great believers in merchandise and we have jigsaws we have umbrellas we have hats we do everything with my pictures on because, <laughs> yes. you know, I like to get them out in any way possible.
0: Yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that. Well, you mentioned the tape, but the other thing that was quite influential was Cruel and Tender, this this kind of now quite uh, infamous um, or famous um, show, again, 2004, which was quite a big year for you. Well, it was the year you cur- curated all. I suppose you I suppose you've always got something going on. But uh, that was a kind of... Kind of unprecedented recognition of photography that 's right, in the UK. yeah, I mean they
1: finally got round to the idea that photography you know should be part of the Tate collection, you know uh, not just artists who make photographs, and in order to prove and demonstrate that, they did this biggest photography show that 's ever been done in the u- in the u k to you know both sides of the galleries with this selection yeah. of uh, cruel nintendo it was, it was curated by Thomas Wesky and uh, emma from the from the Tate can 't remember her second name now. And yeah, that was, a, that was a great statement to have mm. made. And since then, of course, they've had a photography curator and they continue to acquire photography. They have a, mm. you know, they have a, a group that helped them because uh, you know, they haven't got any money, of course, because of the cutbacks. So they raise money amongst themselves with these sort of supporters mm. uh, and have an annual program of, of buying prints.
0: Mm. And they bought your books as well. They yes, yeah. did
1: indeed. Yes, twelve thousand of them. I think it was. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, so I built up this um, photographic collection of books. Uh, I'd done it by going to different countries, like particularly Japan. I remember discovering the books from Japan when I was there in the late eighties. It, it was a complete revelation. It was so good. Mm. Uh, and, of course, we have been blissfully unaware of them and how interesting they were during that same period. That's the arrogance of the West to sort of not even think that someone else might be doing something interesting as well. Of course. And I built up this great collection, and uh, it was too valuable. You know, it was, all, it was all over the place, in my house, in my storage place. And I thought the best destination for this would be the Tate because mm. they didn't have a collection of photography books because, of course, they weren't interested until very recently. And uh, I spoke to Sirota, and over a period of five years, we we came up with this deal. And uh, with the help of the Luma Foundation, we were able to sell it to the Tate, you know, at a very low price given the the strength of the collection. And it's all in there. It's all been there. the inventory has been made, so anyone can go along and and take out the books. Oh, they've and have done a look that.
0: They've done that now because last time last time we speak we spoke, I think that they were sort of working on the on the um, task of uh, of actually you know listing everything. But I did. I did a quick uh, calculation. I was trying to figure out how you managed to buy, to get acquire twelve thousand books. And I, uh, even <laughs> if you think of it over a thirty year period, there's, there's you were buying a lot. You were. I was a
1: buying a lot, and I was spending a lot of money on them yeah. because suddenly, you know, Magnum was working. I got some income, so I basically invested in these mm-hmm. photography books. And of course, if you go to the actual countries where they're from whether it's Argentina, Japan, Australia, they're always cheaper there. Right. than they would be if you waited for a dealer in the UK to find them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was buying these books, uh, you know, at uh, sometimes ridiculously low prices.
0: Amazing. And now you've got um Chris Killip's books here at the that's foundation. Right. Yeah. yeah, so
1: when he retired from Harvard, he he sold me his collection and that's um that's it on the wall over there. That's the international collection. Mm. He also had a lot of British books. So I had to go out and buy out the British books all over again because right. obviously, you know, we're a foundation here that has a big interest in British photography. So these walls around you here are British photography books. And uh, if Chris Killip hadn't, didn't have it in his collection, I'd have to go and buy it again. So God. a lot of the expensive ones, like, say, Thompson's you know, Street Life of London, I had to go and buy again bailey's uh, box of pin i had to buy mm-hmm. again but that was fine because i had four years when i knew i had to do that and uh would slowly and gradually build the collection back up because mm. they had to have the whole collection i couldn't have taken the british books out right, and right. it wouldn't have been right yeah you know, of course they are an integral yeah, part it was a job lot exactly <laughs> yes yeah, as they say
0: <laughs> as they say to under undersell it um yeah but i imagine you quite enjoyed that process anyway um but the The foundation, I mean, the idea for the foundation, um, I think you started it in 2014 as a charity, but with a view to ultimately finding a location, which you obviously have have now done. And it's going from strength to strength, it seems like. Tell me a little bit about, you know, what's happening here. Um, You're obviously, you've created um, an audience. You're building your member numbers um, because obviously you've got a lot of outgoings and and, uh, you've got to pay for everything. But um, and, and and Bob, of course, which you know we uh, the listeners have, have heard me do do a special from the last f- few weeks. But what are you acquiring, and what are you excited by?
1: Well, I mean, the purpose of the foundation is really to give uh, a platform to and to support other British documentary photographers. I mean, one of the things that's here is my own archive, of course, mm. which is uh, you know held here. But uh, I, I think British photography is uh, is very underrated especially in a documentary mode. So we have a gallery, we have four shows a year, we have a a series of seminars, we have talks, we have workshops, and uh, people become members. And this is a research place. We have all the magazines up in the corner there. We've got every picture post. We've got a full set of Creative Camera, 10.8, everything. We've got all the main magazines. Mm -hmm. So if anyone's interested in doing research about British photography, we mm. want to be a place where people can come. And our members can come in uh, and uh, look at books. They can reserve a slot. We have two slots a week or four slots a week where people can come in. And uh, I think this idea of it being a research centre is actually yeah. crucial. A bit like and, going
0: to the reading room of the British Library or something, but it's the kind of photography equivalent of that.
1: And we acquire prints of photographers. So after the, we've done the interview, I'll take you to the archive mm. And together with Isaac, who is our, you know, Curator of this, we can show you some new things that we've got in the collection.
0: Well, I remember just the other week when we were we were at BOP and uh, Cal Pesh Lithigra was here, old friend of mine and friend of the podcast, and um, and you were able to, to take Cal out the back and, and show him some stuff from from back in the day that he'd done when he was on the Independent. You know that even he hadn't seen for for twenty five years or something, and that that was I, mean, I know that was kind of quite a thrill for him. So it was it was lovely that you were in a position to do that sort of thing.
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, we discovered this site. IMS and many of the photographers that are working for the Independent, which was very good in the eighties and nineties, yeah, had yeah. their prints. Uh, uh, you know, they made these wonderful prints. They handwrite the captions. They they write their names, so they're signed almost. Yeah, yeah. And we've bought a lot of those images from uh, from IMS, including Cal's, as you rightly say. So mm. it was fantastic for us to share them with him.
0: Mm, yeah, of course. What's happening in terms of um, kind of immediate plans, um, and or you know, even not so immediate plans, even more more sort of long term plans, as far as the the Well, is. I think
1: uh, you know we will go on collecting. Yeah. Uh, we will, uh, you know, there's a huge amount of work out there that we could potentially be interested in acquiring. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, there's a lot more work to be done. Uh, yeah, yesterday, for example, I was um, with Jem Southam back in his house and discovered this set of pictures he took. Very early on, when him and Paul Graham were working at the Arnolfini, this is a very important time. They managed to bring in uh, new topographics mm. to Bristol, I think, in um, the early 80s. Mm. And uh, the first colour pictures that he did were, were wonderful. It's a great set of pictures. Yeah, the Arnolfini,
0: uh, is a, just for, for non-Brit uh, listeners, is, is a quite well-known arts centre here in Bristol. That's right. Yeah.
1: And they recently did uh, uh, Stephen Gill Retrospective when we had the Bristol Photography Festival, mm-hmm. which was fantastic because Stephen's actually from Bristol, of course. So mm-hmm. it was a great opportunity to to look at his amazing career. Yeah. And yeah, it's uh, we've also got uh, the first project that Paul Graham did when he was living in Bristol. Uh, he did a series of cafe interiors. He'd seen Eggleston's cafe interior and was very taken by that. So these early sort of... Uh, works of photographers that we know and love are to us you know the absolute things that we want to hold mm. and and have here as part of our you know collection and and to be available for research
0: yeah amazing now i want to get your take on a couple of of things which seem all all you know very relevant to you know the wider photographic um, landscape i suppose um I'm always interested in, in getting, you know, people's sort of views on these things. Um, we talked, we've sort of referenced it to some extent, you know, how um, taking pictures in, in the public sphere has become more difficult. And I'm wondering you know, if it's possible that, you know, there'll be a time in, in, in not, not so many years to come where, where, you know, the pictures taken out in, in the street are going to be um, just, you know, far less common to the point where it might disappear entirely what do you think there's a chance that could happen it is a chance really I mean I, I'm very glad
1: I've been a photographer you know during the years that I have been because uh you know although at the moment you can still take any picture of someone in a public place in the UK I can see people sort of coming down on that and people are much more wary now about uh, a big camera while as a, a phone is actually not at all threatening mm. so one of the things I'm thinking is eventually I may have to drop my DSLR mm. and just stick to the, to the, the phone. phone because yeah. the quality is so excellent these yeah. days. And when you're using a phone, it's much less threatening because everyone's got one out yeah, there. Yeah,
0: nobody cares anymore, kind of thing. So that may yeah. be the
1: way we have to go. Mm. It's difficult to know, but. Um, of course. Uh, but at the same time, I'm, I'm glad that we've got things like Instagram. I mean, you have a platform, you know, we have a lots of followers, and if we've got something to tell them about a new book or a new show, which is obviously happening, a bit with me yeah yeah we you can you inform use, them
0: you you do use instagram you know um yeah very well and um yeah that again is another very common subject uh, of conversation on the podcast because everyone's got their own take on it i um, talking to eugene richards just yesterday about it he's sort of you know kind of was a reluctant adoptee of 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 that platform but now i think you know Got, he raised uh, the money for his book, correct? Raised the money for his book, yeah, and and has got a lot of followers, and you know, so many people love love his work, and he's he's putting work up there that you know is sort of stuff from his archive that has perhaps not not been shown before, and you know, I, I, there are there are numerous um, examples, but also you know this the tsunami of imagery that's that's being released on a you know daily basis now also must have an influence on, on the way that people view photography, and you know what does where does that leave us us photographers as it were you know professionally it's a it's a it's kind of a threat I think
1: I I don't I don't feel threatened by it because I mean most of these pictures are very bad and I have to quickly say that most of the pictures I take are very bad you know because uh, to get the good pictures it's almost impossible if you went out in the morning and said today I'm only going to take good pictures you wouldn't get anywhere you you wouldn't even start right so you've got to have that momentum of shooting and you've got to have found the right subject, the right place, the right time, and then things will start to happen.
0: Oh, so you're an advocate of that sort of approach, where you know you've got to just keep keep shooting, and you, you don't you're not you're not worried about diff- producing, like you say, bad photographs.
1: I produce bad photos all the time, right? Uh, and uh, and most of the pictures on Instagram are bad. Yeah. But that's why people come and look at uh, known photographers' Instagram for you know because. You know, I guess uh, those names that we all know and love, uh, you know, have got good photographs and people want to see what they're like. Yeah. And, uh, you know that's that's an important role that uh, Instagram
0: actually plays. Yeah, well, it's a, it's an introduction to these people now. I mean, I was, you know but I suppose back you know back in the day you'd have to go and find a, a, a photo book that might um, be um, extremely difficult to to come by and uh, probably quite expensive as well. Now you can just go to Instagram and see people's work. So yes, yeah. but I,
1: I get a lot of pictures, a lot of books sent to me, and some are really good and a lot of them are very bad. Mm. I never know quite what to do with them all because. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's, it's very difficult to throw out a book. Yeah, yeah. And I'm reluctant to do that. So we try and find homes for the ones that we don't think uh, really work. But, you know, it, it, because it's, publishing is so easy now and because you can do it yourself, people often publish unresolved projects, basically. Mm, mm. You know, just people love the idea of having a book, of seeing the pictures, you know, but you could take a book in an afternoon. Mm. Uh, and, for example, Drum is a good example of Crass Clement actually shooting a whole book in an Irish pub in two hours, which has become probably the best known photography book in Ireland. Right. So sometimes even that can work. Yeah. But most of the time it doesn't. Because photographers are lazy, they don't do enough work. They they think they've got something when they haven't. Yeah. And this applies to the people who are listening to this podcast. Yeah. You know, you're not ambitious enough. You haven't actually identified what it is in your work that could be interesting to follow up, to make more pictures in that vein, mm. which will help them to Bring together the the, uh, the subject matter that they're interested in, and their ability to connect with it. Mm-hmm. It's that quality of the connection which is so crucial. Right. And I get so fed up when I see these mediocre photo books being published. I mean, I've just been to Paris Photo. Thousands of books out there. There's probably like ten that I would say are really good. Mm-hmm. Unless it's just like, like Boris Mikhailov He's doing a catalogue for the show in Paris, that is going to be good because he's one of the great photographers from the last 20 years. But a lot of the unknowns, God bless them, aren't doing very good books. Mm. And they need to be more ambitious. They need to be more stricter. You know, uh, They need to go to folio reviews. And, and hear. You know, people often, when I write back to people, I often tell them what I think and they don't like it. Mm. But I have to, I can't pretend otherwise.
0: No, you've got to be honest. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah, even if it is uh, hard to... To hear. um but like you say i think the people who pay attention to that kind of uh input are the ones who probably go away and you know take it all on board and then eventually come up with something really good we hope so well one hopes so yeah i wouldn't know i'm not particularly well qualified to, to oh make, come make on judgments. you're very well qualified i don't think you so. know you're a
1: tastemaker remember
0: i don't I, I don't think so i just try and talk to no but you people select people stuff. to talk to well yeah but again um <laughs> There's always huge emissions and uh, it's impossible to talk to everyone. But, yeah, I just, I just try and keep abreast a of of what's happening to some extent. And, and some of it's just quite instinctive, I suppose. And, you know, I guess, yeah, I mean, there's stuff I like and there's stuff I don't. But that's never a criteria for the podcast. I should always say, say that. I don't know if I've ever said, said that. But, yeah, I mean, being being a photographer whose work I like is, is, is nothing to do with whether one comes on but and do you, a chat.
1: do you do podcasts
0: with photographers you don't like? Um, I would certainly, yes, I would certainly talk to someone whose work I personally don't particularly like if they had a, a fan base or if they were considered to be of interest, you know, some, somewhere. Okay, I mean, so here's
1: the job, folks, out there. <laughs> We've got to spot them <laughs> yeah. when he doesn't like it sure, and I'd we'll write in and tell I him. Mean,
0: I mean, for instance, okay, so like, I mean, je- on a general level, so I don't like, like I do not particularly like that very sort of rough and ready kind of snapshot aesthetic, you know, where sort of, pictures which are basically shit are mm-hmm. being presented as kind of arty and therefore mm-hmm. you know i'll put them in a book and that makes them something significant yeah i don't like that for instance no yeah. names but um no. i i got a book recently that that would fit that fit that description and um yeah i haven't got time for that sort of thing yeah. but again i mean
1: likewise with you know even parry photo you walk around there Half the images on the wall, even if you paid me, I wouldn't have them on my wall. No right. Yeah. I mean, I can't believe how much bad work is out there. Mm. And that's why I think, you know, we all look for these sort of pockets of, of good work. You know, you know, you walk around Parry Photo and suddenly you see a wall of Joseph Kadelkas, and think, wow, what a relief to see mm. something that we know is great. <laughs>
0: yeah and that's it isn't it quality will out as they say and i think i think that always applies you know it's a bit like anyone who went to the chris killip show at the at the national uh at the photographers gallery recently you know that was that was the general refrain you know among all and sundry because you know if it's good it's good and it and it just jumps out at you and especially if you put that in the context of stuff that isn't so good i mean i parry photo as um the listeners will now know because i will have explained to them i i didn't make it and i'm really gutted about it but um i guess the only the only thing i'm familiar with is photo london and and a lot of that work i mean work that is being you know kind of sold for um you, you know to for people to buy prints and put on their walls some of it's quite i suppose quite commercial and um pretty pretty yeah which is okay but yeah i don't know if it's necessarily what most of us would consider to be good mm-hmm. uh it's funny isn't it i mean it's such a it's such a broad church i mean
1: and someone must be buying these pictures
0: yeah that shows you what Thankfully. bad
1: taste some people have
0: <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're, we're sort of yeah sliding into potentially um controversial territory
1: should we go and look at some pictures then just to sort of finish yeah. off
0: before we finish um I'm really glad we did this. Thank you so much for doing it because we, we filled in some of the gaps that we, we left in the last chat. Uh, by the way, that is to this day the the most uh, downloaded of all episodes. I've never told you that, but that is the case. So it goes to show... Nice to hear. Yeah. People are interested in, in what you're up to and um, what you have to say, there's no doubt. Um, now, how are you? I know you're... Well, you're not well. <laughs> that's a given. But in terms of that, you know what's yeah the, what's so the let me
1: explain so basically about two years ago i was diagnosed with myeloma it's sort of a blood cancer it affects my spine and back in particular <coughs> i then had the uh, treatment i had uh, my stem cells removed big chemoblast which is why my hair you can see is still a bit curly mm. and uh and then the stem cells go back in. And at that point, your your uh, immunization yeah. is very low. You know, you're, you're very vulnerable. Of course. So you have to stay in hospital for the first two weeks. You then go home and you have to be very careful with the food you eat. But last summer, with the aid of a mobile scooter, I was out there shooting away. And that was such a relief yeah. to get back uh, on, you know, and shooting again. I went to Glassbury. I've never been to that Amazing. because it's always the same weekend as the Magnum AGM. Uh, I went to Malaga and did a big commission and i was then doing some more commercial work and interestingly i was uh, about a month ago i was in paris and i was doing a big shoot for balenciaga you know it's one of the biggest brands around so mm. it's uh you know 17 models so it's high pressure i'd done three quarters of the shoot and suddenly i felt absolute shit mm-hmm. i felt terrible and basically i had to stop the shoot and louis my assistant god bless him Went on and uh, finished uh, the last two shots because he he knows how I work, so that was a great relief. But I had to go back to the hotel. I slept, and then the following morning I went straight to ICU in Paris, and they pumped me full of uh, antibiotics for a week, mm. and then I was okay. Mm. You know, then I'd recover because basically it, I had an infection. Uh, the thing is, if you you know, I had sepsis basically, mm, mm, mm. and also with sepsis you get often these hallucinatory images and I yeah, had a bit of that. Yeah, so that was it. a bit scary. But now now I'm back mm. and I'm fine. I'm in remission. Are you? And okay. I'm, you know, living life to the full.
0: Yeah. Because I mean it's not obviously not curable, but it's treatable and you've that, you say exactly, you've had yeah. the treatment, you've yeah. had the stem cell thing, which is pretty re- remarkable that they can do the, those sorts of things now. But yeah, beyond that, you don't know what what the future holds in terms of no. the prognosis, yeah.
1: So fingers crossed, you know, songs uh, I mean obviously you know taking pictures is such an important sort of therapy at the moment and the fact that i can do that is, is amazing
0: mm. yeah it's essential to you it's uh, it's what you are and uh yeah long may it continue thank you thank you martin
1: okay now we can look at some pictures right yes,
0: let's go